Welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. Lord, please don't let us ever get to the bottom of grace. Don't let us ever think when we hear the good news of your love for us, Don't ever let us shrug our shoulders and be like, oh yeah, he loves us. Let us never. And if we're in that place, amazingly, grace still says that's okay. But I pray for today, God, that our hearts would be open to just how incredible your story is. Just how incredible it is. How astonishing it is that you would step into time. The God of creation the God of all that is and was and is to come, the ground of existence, you would step into time and write yourself as a character in this history. And uh, the form of the story that the character takes, the shape of Jesus's life, is nothing short of astonishing. Lord, don't let us lose that. And so today I pray for each person in this room, no matter what they may think about you, whether they would call themselves a follower of yours or whether they're not sure about it or maybe they're a little bitter towards something they've seen in the church or, in, or, or something they don't understand about your character, I would pray right now, God, that they would sense that, that they're here for a reason. And so to take a breath and open up their hearts to what you might want to say to them. Lord, speak to us in a way that only you can. It's in your name. Amen. All right. So we are finishing our January mini-series that we're calling Hungry to go with our prayer and fasting. And like I said, um, we're we're in the third week, so stuff's getting a little real. I'm not feeling the pangs of hunger anymore in my fast. I'm not feeling like I want to quit, but I'm definitely not feeling euphoric. I'm just sort of in this steady place, this even kill place. Maybe you're like me. And so what we want to ask on this last Sunday of the fast is, Lord, what do you have for us? What do you want to show us? What is the final word for us before we step further into 2020 into this year of discipleship and what you're doing in our lives? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but we're not the only church participating in 21 days of prayer and fasting. There's actually a lot of churches that are doing this far more than there were five or 10 years ago. I I actually have a really interesting spiritual story. When I was born, my parents were Methodist, and then we attended a Baptist church for a while, and then we had a little crazy phase with the non-denominationals, and then we ended up in Foursquare, which is where we are today. So we're a little little bit of spiritual uh, uh, hybrids, grunts, you know? I don't know. And And as I've looked around at my friends in these various tribes, various categories, I've noticed that they're all fasting. They're all starting the year off with something like this, 21 days of fasting. Guys, when the Baptists are fasting, something crazy is happening, all right? You know God is up to something. And I'm sort of pulling back and saying, what is happening right now in our society? Why is everyone eager to fast? No one's eager to fast. No one's eager to fast in New York City especially with Michelin-starred restaurants on every corner, and like, no one's eager to fast. And yet something is going on. And so I'm asking the question, all right, God, 
why are people fasting? And the answer is quite simple, and we've talked about it. Because apparently the food that society is giving us is not satisfying. Apparently what we've been feasting on, what's been nourishing us, isn't working anymore. Society's answers are leaving us hungry, and so we're desperate for something else. Maybe God has something else that when we, when we feast upon him, when we turn the desires of our hearts to him, maybe that will give us the rest we're all looking for. And that's what I want to talk about today is the final word of hungry and as we move further into 2020. I want to talk about what society is feeding us and why it's not working and why the words and story and person of Jesus is what we're all looking for. When you look out at the data, the proof is kind of in the pudding. There was a report that came out last June that analyzed um, data from the, the previous 10 years and, and found some startling results. Basically what they found is that over the last 10 years, in every possible demographic, what they call deaths of despair have gone up. And deaths of despair are deaths by drugs, alcohol, and suicide. In every possible demographic, it has skyrocketed over the last 10 years. And it's most pronounced, the, 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 greatest, um, the, most, the, the greatest jump was among millennials. In fact, what they said is between 2007 and 2017, among millennials, drug-related deaths increased by 108%, alcohol by 69%, and suicides by 35%. And that doesn't even tell the full story. Because for every one completed suicide, there were 20 that were failed. Guys, let those numbers sink in. For every one suicide that, that worked, for lack of a better word, there were 20 that didn't. Something isn't working in our society. Something's not right. The food we're eating is not satisfying. Moreover, they found in the data that between 2008 and 2015, the number of adolescents or children who sought treatment for thoughts of self-harm doubled. Children are seeking treatment two times as much over seven-year time span for thoughts of self-harm. Something's not working. When I was 17, I had a night where I thought, everything was just crashing in. I thought my whole life was crashing in. The anxiety and stress was super um, pronounced. I couldn't get away from it. As these things tend to go, I can't even remember the details surrounding it. It probably had something to do with a bad grade or girl problems or sports issues, right? I can't even remember the details. All I remember about that night is that the stress was so high, I felt stuck. I felt like there was no way out. And so my parents were out and I walked into the kitchen and I took a knife and I began to just press it onto my arm. And I just pressed it harder and harder and harder. I didn't want to die. I just wanted out of this toxic game I felt I was stuck in. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know I'm not the only one in the room. I wanted out of this toxic game that felt like I was ever striving towards some elusive goal, some elusive standard, that when I reached it, then I would finally feel like I'm enough. Then I would finally feel like, okay, I made it. I'm worthy. And I never could get there. 
And the closer I felt like I was getting, the further the goal moved away from me. And I'm not alone. There's, a, there's another thesis that's been around for really the last couple hundred years in different forms and fashion. You may have heard of it. It's called the secularization thesis. And it goes like this. Uh, the thesis is that as societies modernize, and what they mean by that is as the standard of living becomes pretty consistent in a populace, like we don't have to fear wars too much, we don't have to fear not having food on the table or a roof over our heads. As societies modernize, the thesis goes, religion will diminish. It, it, there won't be any, any need for religion anymore. And often proponents of this thesis, they point to what is called the rise of the nuns. And I want to be careful with this. Uh, when I say nuns, I mean N-O-N-E-S, as in no religious affiliation. One time I talked about this, and I didn't clarify, and someone came up afterwards, and he was like, the entire time, I thought you were talking about, like, the Catholic nuns. And he was like, all I could think about was, why are the nuns rising? Who's angered the nuns? Stop making the nuns angry. <laughs> so when I say nuns, I mean N-O-N-E-S. Um, those saying that they have no religious affiliation. And yes, that is true. There are more people than ever who are claiming no religious affiliation. And church attendance is going down. Well, what's been pointed out is that really doesn't tell the full story. And I love the way that David Zoll in his book, Seculosity, puts it. This is what he writes. Bombarded with poll results about declining levels of church attendance and belief in God, we assume that more and more people are abandoning the faith. What they fail to report is that the marketplace and replacement religion is booming. Religious observance hasn't faded so much as migrated. Now, we're seldom not in church. What does he mean? Well, he contrasts two different ideas of religion. Religion with a capital R and religion with a lowercase r. Religion with a capital R is what we're all used to. It's, it's the major faith traditions. It's the churches and the mosque and the temples. It's where you gather. It's the robes and the vestments and the, the sacraments and the liturgies. That's uppercase R religion. And that is declining. People aren't in those spaces anymore. But religion with the lowercase r is something that is very much on the rise and very much is migrated. Because religion with the lowercase r is, is at, at its simplest, it's trying to answer the question, why do I exist? Why do I exist? As David Dart calls it, he says religion with the lowercase r is a controlling story. It's a story that gives sense to our lives. It's a story that, that gives us a meaning for our existence and our worlds and why there's such a thing as evil in the world or not. That's religion with a lowercase r. And that, friends, that used to be housed with, within uh, the big R religion, the big houses of worship. Now, it's not there. It's all over our society. It's everywhere. We're not irreligious. We are just as, if not more, religious than ever. And when we look outside these doors, when we look at our worlds and our jobs and our families and our societies, we see all sorts of competing, controlling stories. We see all sorts of promises that if we will just live as faithful believers to this message, to this gospel, then we'll finally feel like we're enough. If we will just offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to this thing over here, 
then we'll know we're worthy of love. And and it's not far-fetched. Let's just name a few off the top of our heads. What about the gospel of work? You know what I'm talking about? I exist to succeed in my work. So we, we, we have the rise and grind culture. If we will do our devotions and answer emails at midnight, right? If we will do our devotions and offer our bodies a live, as a living sacrifice to, to our career, then we will get somewhere. We'll get, we'll get promoted. We'll finally reach some place when, when the gods of work will look at us and say, ah, you're saved now. You are justified. You are worthy. Or the, the gospel of parenting. Apparently, and I'm a millennial, I don't have any kids yet, but um, apparently there was a day when you just raised kids. You didn't worry about how you raised them. <laughs> now, the, as Zoll points out in his book, there's an entire like billion dollar industry that has boomed about the right way to raise your kids. You have parenting philosophies, you have helicopter parents and free range parents where your kids get five minutes of sunlight a day, I guess. They walk around. <laughs> I don't know. But, 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 but consider this. What is the implicit message here? That there is a right way to raise your kids, and your child's success or failure affects your salvation. You are putting the weight. I exist for my child, to help my child succeed. And if they succeed or don't succeed, that affects my value and my worth. That's the religion of parenting. We have the religion of celebrity. The idea that if we just curate that image and people start looking at us, I exist to be celebrated by others. And when I'm celebrated, then I'll be enough. We have the religion of politics. I don't even need to talk about that one. We exist for the society to move a certain way. And when it does, then we'll be enough. David Zoll points out, he knew that this was a real one and this was, um, this was really deep. Uh, when, when one Halloween, and he's a professor at a university, and it's a pretty uh, left-leaning university, and so most of the professors, most people that live in the neighborhood, it's a left-leaning neighborhood. And back in the 2016 election, there was one person in the neighborhood that had a placard in their front yard that said, Make America Great Again. And on Halloween, this is when he, he knew it was real, on Halloween he watched as parents did not allow their kids and shepherded them around that house to not get candy there because who knows, that candy might turn them to the right, you know? Right? Like think about that. That's create, it's a religion of us versus them. These people are not safe. They might be indoctrinated. We can't trust their candy. We exist for the, the country to move into a certain direction. And if, if all of those, you know, are unconvincing, I can prove that our society is full of religious narratives with just two words. You ready? Soul cycle. <laughs> yep. They're all the soul cycle believers. They're in the cult. <laughs> and I'm not hating because I may or may not be a part of my own exercise cult known as CrossFit. Um, and I know you're like, wow, he's really skinny. I said I may or may not. <laughs> All right, back off. But think about this. An entire industry that has combined exercise, right? Treating the body well, which is a great thing, but with some like religious euphoria where one, one Twitterer tweeted, is it even soul cycle if you don't randomly cry in the middle of it? 
right? There's this combination, the controlling narrative. Don't even get me started on essential oils, guys. This controlling narrative that if we obtain the perfect healthy body, then we will obtain fullness of meaning and purpose. Then we will be saved. We're not less religious. It's everywhere now. Everywhere is a religious narrative. Everywhere. And so I just want to do one thing with my remaining time. I want to remind us all of the gospel of Jesus. As the final word for us, as we have one more week of fasting before we step further into 2020 and to learning who he is, accepting his controlling story at the sense of us, at the, at the deepest part of us, to let it sort of work itself out and guide us in our lives. I want to remind us of what his story is and why there is a fundamental difference between the gospel of Jesus and all the other religious narratives that we're steeped in. And so for our passage, I'm going to read a section from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's reminding them of something. And this is what he says. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers and sisters, that not many of you were intellectuals as the world counts cleverness. Not many held influence, not many were born to high status. With the foolish things of the world, God chose in order to shame the clever. And the weak things of the world, God chose to shame positions of strength. The insignificant of the world and the despised, God chose, yes, the nothings, to bring to nothing the somebodies, so that all kinds of persons should not pride themselves before God. It is a gift from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom given from God, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who glories glory in the Lord. Corinth was a lot like our society, right? It was actually, uh, the city of Corinth was situated on a very narrow neck of land with two harbors on either side. It was six miles across of land. It's pretty cool. And it connected uh, the, the region of Greece in the north to the Peloponnese in the south. So it was a, a, a very strategic site and hub of international trade, like another city that we know of very well. It was this major epicenter, and therefore it, it was very pluralistic. It drew people from all across the Roman Empire. So there were tons of cultures, tons of foods, tons of attractions, religions, controlling story. And if you were to sort of uh, condense down, what is the lowercase r religious narrative of Corinth? What is the competing, controlling story? It would go something like this. You can be anything you want. Work hard enough, cheat a little bit, value spectacle over substance, know the right people, promote yourself, and then you will find prosperity, glory, and eternal life. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Make it to the top and you'll be enough. That's the religion of Corinth, to which Paul says to the church in this city, to which God says to us, remember when you were called. Remember when God showed up to you the first time. And then he begins to list out the status of the Corinthians when God appeared to them. And he says, not many of you were intellectuals as the world counts cleverness. Not many were in positions of power as the world counts positions of power. Not many were of high status as the world counts status. Why? God chose the foolish to shame the wise. 
He chose the weak to shame positions of power. He chose nobodies to shame those who think themselves somebody so that no one would be confused as to why God has welcomed us into his presence. And the reason why we are welcome into God's presence has nothing to do with our merit or lack of merit. It has everything to do with God's choice. It has everything to do with God. See, the issue is if, if God would have chosen those of natural abilities, they would have imagined that God chose them because of their natural abilities, right? That seems natural. If God would have shown up first to those in positions of power, well, they would think, well, that, that's strategic of God. He showed up to me because of my positions of power. If God would have chosen those born to high status, they would have thought it was because of their high status. And nothing is further from the truth. God did not choose us for our abilities, our power, our status, or our lack of any of those things. He did not choose you or love you because you've worked for it, because you earned it, because you think you deserve it, or you think you're moral. God chose you because God is a God who chooses. As we've talked about before, and as C.S. Lewis put it so well, God loves us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. In our society, we're told the, 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 the religion is you do, and then they love. The gospel of Jesus is simply God loves, period. That's it. There's nothing else. God loves. God loves because of what Jesus has done. That's it, period. Do whatever you like. And of course, then we get to all sorts of questions that Paul answers. What does that mean? We, we, we act a fool so that God's grace can abound? Well, certainly not, he says. That demonstrates you don't understand God's grace. But it does mean that if you do act a fool, that does not change God's love. God loves, period. The reason we're able to be in God's presence today or any day henceforth, as Paul would say, the source of your life is not your doing, but God's doing, God's choice. Not your wisdom, your power, or your status, not your career, your parenting, success, or failures, your social media, your family situation, your history. The only reason you are able to open up your hands and receive God's love is because he has given it to you, period. There's a word for the controlling stories of our society right now. Zal coined it. He calls it performancism. And performancism is simple. There is no distinction between what we do and who we are. We are what we do. We are how we perform for good or ill. And interestingly, when we go back to the suicide data, the studies found what they called suicide clusters. These pockets of, of regions in the country where suicides are four to five times the national average. And do you know where they are? Palo Alto, California. Northern Virginia. Fairfield, Connecticut. All these places that are like the epicenters of education, power, status, and affluence. And their kids are killing themselves at four to five times the national average because the religion in our country and society is performancism. If I perform, then I'm worthy of value and love. And if I don't perform, then I am worthy of damnation. 
And these kids are watching their parents change the landscape of the world, and they're thinking, there's no way I can ever live up to that. Hence, why do I even try? Why do I even live? How sad is that? See, when I put the knife into my arm when I was 17, I was believing in the religion of performancism. I was believing that my performance was failing. Hence, I'm failing. Therefore, why do I even live? And I know, I know as we're, as we're turning our attention to God in these 21 days of prayer and fasting, as we're going to continue to do it this year, we still have to fight. We have to fight the lies of our society that tries to thrust upon us performancism, that tries to thrust upon us, here's what you have to do. If you do these things, then you are worthy of value. And, and I know it because I'm with you. We look at our careers and what do we say? Oh, I'm not where I wanted to be by this point. Or I got to where I wanted to be and it's still so hollow. I still, that goal of someone filling me and saying I'm enough, it's not there. What's going on? We look to our family situation and we're not married. Or, or we are married, but our marriage is super strained and not where we thought it would be. Or our kids aren't performing like those kids over there. And we look on Instagram, and wouldn't you know it, there's not a single example of an imperfect family on Instagram. They're just making sugar cookies and laughing and having the best old time. Great, Instagram, all the families are killing it out there, and my family isn't performing. We look all around, and that's constantly this religion of performancism. And I'm just not measuring up, and so we're exhausted. And our lives are one step after another are screaming, am I there yet? Have I done enough yet? I'm really tired. Can I just rest for a second? Have I done enough? Have I performed enough to be worthy of love? And our society looks at us and shakes its head and goes, nope. Keep going. And maybe we do. And maybe we don't. And maybe some of us realize that this is never going to happen and they decide to call it quits. Mary Carr wrote a memoir about her life and she called it Cherry. And she tells a story in it that when she was 14, she was despairing of life. She felt like she wasn't performing. Her parents were out and she decided to call it quits. And so she swallowed a bottle of pills and laid down to die. Hers was one of the 20 suicides that didn't work. So her parents returned that night to her vomiting profusely. They didn't suspect a suicide attempt, they just thought it was food poisoning, and so they began to nurse her back to health. Her dad asked her if there was any food she thought she could stomach. She said plums, because that's what came to mind, and because plums were out of season. And so she laid over and went to sleep. The next morning, her father came into her room with a bushel of plums, having driven through the night from Texas to Arkansas to get it for her. And this is what she writes. But it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck, and the nectar runs down your chin, and you snap out of it, or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself. 
Not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who gives enough of a damn to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. This concept she's describing, there's another word in our controlling story, in the story of Jesus. And it's the very opposite of the religion of performancism. And it's the core impulse of who God is and who we are. And that word is grace. You don't earn your life. You can't lose your life. Everything you have and are is given to you. And friends, I want to remind us that as we step into 2020, and you're going to face the ups and downs of society and your life just as I am with things we don't know is about to happen, I want to remind you that when you are at your lowest, and maybe that's right now, maybe you entered in at your lowest, you have a God that didn't just go from Texas to Arkansas, but who came from heaven to earth. You have a God who came, gave up his glory, gave up intimacy and richness with the Father, and came into this broken world. And he didn't just bring plums, but he paid the ultimate price to give you life. When you sink your teeth into that warm flesh, and that red nectar, that red liquid drips down your chin, you remember that that flesh and that liquid was not free, but that your father paid a price and would pay it again and again and again. Remember that your father has already given enough of a damn to bring you plums and gives enough of a damn to do it over and over when we look at Jesus on the cross and we imagine that he is voluntarily up there, no one put him up there, there was no charge that could be levied against him for why he was deserving of death. And then we realize that this isn't just any man, but this is also the power of the living God. This is the face of the creator up there dying voluntarily for you so that you would know the depths of God's justice and love, and so that you would never question again whether you deserve to live and to be and to exist. And it has nothing to do with your career, and it has nothing to do with your marriage, and it has nothing to do with your family situation, it has nothing to do with your body. It has everything to do because your father gives enough of a damn to bring you plums. And we'll do it over and over, over and over and over. And my friends, I cannot get to the depths of grace. It breaks me every time. This is the most insane story and there's nothing else like it. And I'm not going to apologize for my tears. You're like, well, you cry every Sunday. That's true. <laughs> I can't get enough of the gospel. I can't get enough that when I want to call it quits, when I feel like such a failure, God says, I came from heaven to earth for you. You're not. And even if you do call it quits, that still does not discount his love when you are hungry, when you're not, remember, you don't choose a thing. It's all given to you. Because the core of our controlling story is a man hanging on a cross, dying voluntarily for love to make us enough. We didn't perform. He did. 
And when you think about it, God is basically choosing the exact opposite of our society. Because Jesus on a cross is the center of God's wisdom. But how is winning by losing wise? And Jesus on a cross is the center, the core of God's power. But how is being executed showing up the power structures of the world? And Jesus on a cross is the center of God's face, God himself, his status. But that doesn't seem like it's really acquiring, you know, too much of a following yet. And yet God chose that one and that scene to demonstrate the fullness of his love. And then he chose that one, as we sang about, to raise from the dead. So even if the dregs of our society, God says, even that won't be lost, even that won't die, well then this whole darn thing is grace. This whole dang thing is grace. So let the one who glories glory in the Lord. What would it look like this year, guys, if we were known by New York City as those who aren't striving to perform? We still work hard. We still want to do the best we can, but we're not striving to perform because we're not believing the religion that we have to perform to receive love and value. We walk around free with peace and joy. And when our friends and our colleagues and our society says, how are you so full of joy? You haven't performed. You're not at the top of your career. How are you so free? We say, because my father brought me the damn plums. And I don't have to perform. You are chosen. You are chosen. You are chosen. And if you've never heard that message today, and you're here for the first time, let me tell you, you are chosen. And it has nothing to do with your performance. I'm going to ask you to stand to your room or stand to your feet and close your eyes and let's pray together. God, you know every heart in this room, and so I pray right now you would bring to mind the area in each person's life where they feel like they are failing in their performance. Where do they feel like they're failing the world? They're failing you? They're just not measuring up. Or even if they're feeling like they are measuring up, would you bring to mind an area where they're not to remind them that they have not earned your presence, but it was a gift paid with a steep price by your son. Lord, as we step, as we finish this fast and we step more into this year into what you're doing in our community and what you're doing in us as a people, would, would the core of our community, would the ground of our fellowship have nothing to do with our performance and everything to do with your gracious choice of us. And you graciously chose us because Jesus performed. Because Jesus, that man hanging on a cross, lived a life we couldn't live and died the death that should have been ours. He did it all. He brought us the plums.
So we eat them with gladness and humble hearts, and we say, who are you, God, that would be this good? Show us even more of yourself. Lord, as we sing this response song and as we, as we take communion, Holy Spirit, would you minister to every person in this room, whatever they may think about you. Would you reveal to them that you see all of them, you have not rejected them, and that you are at work in their lives whether they know it or not. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved the Father enough and you loved us enough to bring us plums, to bring us yourself, and we receive it today. Amen. Would you sing this song in response? To find out more about the mission of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday gatherings, brunch, how to financially contribute, and a whole lot more, check us out online at www.hopebrooklyn.org. Thanks to Liz Vice at lizvice.com for the music and to you for tuning in. See you next week.